When it comes to self-development, no matter the method you use, the vital point is to practice. If you're ready to transform your life and claim the potential inside of you, then you're in the right place. Welcome back to the Vital Point Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Schechter. As a transformation coach and breathwork facilitator, I'm invested in making the dynamic landscape of personal evolution accessible. My goal is to inspire you to take action for yourself because you have the capacity to evolve and bring your intentions and dreams into the world. There's never been more access to so many incredible modalities that can help you on your journey. This podcast will help you learn simple methods you can use to transform your life and share the stories and wisdom of practitioners who are doing the work so that you feel inspired to go and practice because that's the vital point. And I'm still buzzing from uh, my conversation with today's guest, Noel Coakley. Noel is a psychotherapist and meditation facilitator. He's also the director for the Boston Center for Contemplative Practice and an assistant director with Dharma Moon. And that's where I met Noel during the Dharma Moon Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training uh, earlier this year. He's a mental health counselor, former school teacher, and he's been practicing meditation since 1996. Um, very aligned with the Tibetan traditions and currently the Yungdrub Bon. Uh, he's been fortunate to learn from over 100 teachers, including His Holiness the Dalai Lama and His Holiness the 34th Menri Trize. And we have this common teacher as far as David Nickturn. Such a wonderful conversation that we just had uh, that dipped into really the heart of, you know, Buddhist practice and the heart of what I think a lot of people experience when they have these unity consciousness experiences or experiences of non-dual uh, consciousness within uh, holotropic states or, you know, plant medicine, psychedelic spaces, this uh, experience that at our core, there's nothing to fix. There's nothing to improve or to work towards that we are this Buddha nature innately. And that doing these different practices is really just removing the things that are keeping us from experiencing this truth that, you know, we do have this innate Buddha nature within us, all of us. And so we really, we really got into that and talked about, you know, how, how do we embody that in an authentic way without bypassing, uh, without, um, you know, intellectualizing and also taking into account our unique Western upbringing and, you know, some of the uh, sort of societal or cultural ideas and beliefs that might come along with that. You know, we also get into just really what it means to be embodied with these teachings, uh, to, to use mindfulness in a very uh, practical way in a way that enriches the rest of our experience and 
where we're able to take all of our experiences and the different parts of our personality and the different parts that we may have identified with and use those as opportunities to continue to remove those obscurations, to use these opportunities as grist for the mill, as Ram Dass would say, and to trust um, and love all these parts of us. You know, one of the things that I really liked about Noel's message that he came back to a few times was that we have to have the compassion and the wisdom. We can't just have the wisdom without compassion. Otherwise, um, that's where we get into some trouble in terms of bypassing or, you know, intellectualizing what we're, what we're working through. What a wonderful conversation. And Noel was kind enough to offer a, a visualization, a compassion meditation for you to follow along with at the end of the uh, episode. Definitely listen to the whole interview so that you can get some of the unpacking and sort of ground uh, explanation of the practice. Um, but I, I love doing these practices along with the guests and I had a really uh, beautiful experience. So uh, my hope is that you are able to connect and, and work with this practice as well. And uh, Noel has some upcoming uh, offerings, uh, some classes, as well as some free offerings that we linked on the show page. So definitely check that out. Really just invite you to take a few deep breaths to connect to your breath and the present moment and drop in with Noel Coakley. Welcome to the Vital Point Podcast. Thanks for having me, Jonathan. It's good to see you. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, we, we met during the Dharma Moon Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training and you know, I have to say one of my favorite moments during the whole training, um, we just for the background for the audience, we had five different um, sort of weekend sessions. And then at during each one of those weekends, there would be like an intensive session where we would be meditating for like three hours, you know, rounds of sitting and walking meditation. And one of my favorite moments was a night where you were leading and the i could tell even though you had your microphone muted there was progressively getting there was progressively more rain and storming happening yeah where you where you were and it was so cool to me like i i was really uh aware that you were trying to be like thinking about everybody else doing the meditation and really aware of muting your zoom and at some point you went inside yeah. but just the to me like there's a vital point of meditation right like you didn't go oh it's you know like <laughs> how how am i supposed to concentrate on my breath when there's this rain and yeah. probably thunder and lightning happening how did know? this happen to me <laughs> right 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 yeah like yeah. just enjoying the beauty of the moment. And I was just imagining you sitting there um, and just being able to like experience that for me in the desert, you know, like now it's the monsoon season here. So we're getting some really cool rainstorms. But at the time it was like, oh, like I, I can imagine being there with you. It looked like you were like on your porch yeah. and yeah. just a beautiful sort of setting for that meditation. 
Yeah, that was that was fun. That was it was it is really nice. It's lovely when to sit out there when it's raining. The thunder was cracking. And uh yeah, I was worried how much is the mic picking up of this thunder and I think it popped off on one of them during one of the sits. I was like, Oh, I hope I didn't startle anybody with that. And then yeah, I had to move just because it started trickling you know, it started coming through the deck above me and soaking the computer and the microphone. So I had to move in. But yeah, that's one of those things, right? It, like whether it's any given sit or you're teaching or whatever, it's like who knows how that's going to go, right? And I think there's even something to that, right, of the idea of like, okay, yeah, we get a nice cushion and sit in a room that's maybe like minimally distracting and you got the temperature control, et cetera, right? You got some idealized thing. There's right. almost this way that that's uh, – there's some ways that's not very helpful, right? You know, it's at a certain point after you work with it in the lab, you got to go take it for a walk or go sit outside in the middle of the city or like – because life is not that – quiet mine is not i don't think anybody's is a cozy room with ac and you know sound right right yeah i work with a lot of um people right now that are you know in a residential treatment center mm. for behavioral health yeah and when i you know that's one of the things i always mention in my mindfulness group is like this is this is the reason that i like to practice with my eyes open because if i can only use these skills like you said, like, oh, I'm, I'm feeling upset or like, you know, kind of discombobulated. I need to go sit in my room and turn the lights off and, you know, yeah. get rid of all the sound and shut out all the, you know, stimuli. Well, what good is that skill for me? Like, I want to be able to call upon this and be aware of it and, and be able to use it any time of the day, regardless of what's going on. Yeah, yeah. In the thick of the mess. That's why when you see like when... I mean, any of us idealize like some state or some set of conditions in meditation, right? Or the idea of like going on a retreat, which is good. Mm. Not, it's not a bad thing. But then thinking like, oh, it's got to be, I got to be in the middle of the mountains. I got to be in the middle of wherever, some quiet, you know, leave society situation in order to do this. It's a good thing to refamiliarize with this thing that we then hopefully carry, carry outside of all that. Yeah. Yeah. There's such a good reframe in, you know, making that, uh, that pivot to like, whatever comes up is grist for the mill. Or, you know, I think, uh, like one of my favorite, uh, sort of teachings from, I believe who's coming up for me, I'm sure somebody else has said it too, is, uh, Dilgo Kensei Rinpoche was like that adversity reveals your hidden faults. Mm -hmm. And like, so mm -hmm. adversity is really that, that teacher of like really pointing out like, oh, this is where I've actually integrated what I'm practicing. And this is where I still have some work to do. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you remind me, we shared David Nickturn as a teacher and he learned from Dogo Kinsey for sure, or at least met him. Um, and I, I always think of him saying, you know, if you think you're enlightened, you know, let me know how your Thanksgiving dinner goes or something like that. <laughs> or like, you know, where are you Thursday afternoon at three o'clock uh, to the same point, right? It's like just having it in these idealized areas. What good is that? You know? Yeah, absolutely. So you, you brought up David, our, our mutual teacher, yeah. and there was something that, that I was curious about because you're the main sort of, or at least the first teachers that you've worked with were of Tibetan descent, right? Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. So what are some of the differences um, and maybe similarities um, between working with a teacher that, you know, 
uh, came from, you know, Tibet or, you know, India, their culture is different. Maybe there's a language barrier there yeah. versus like working with David. Cause that's something that we both have in common, right? We both have David as a teacher and I think our main teachers are Tibetan. Right. Right. And then I think what we have in common with David as also the students, as, us as students and, and himself as a student is having teachers that are Tibetan, right? So right. he, he w has gone through that as a student. Um, yeah. You know, so, and, and most, I think most of us, I mean, we're only talking a generation or two at the most. Right. As far as Western culture, really that being an available thing to us all. So I think a lot of people are in this situation and it, my experience is, I'm not trying to dodge it and let's get into it a bit, but like it's been different with every teacher in that each one of the teachers that I've known from that background has had a different view on the sort of like, no, we've done it this way. This is how we do it. And that's that's why we're going to do it that way. And the other side of the spectrum of like very open to different ways of talking about this, still still keying in on like, let's learn it how we learned it first, but then you can take it and run with it. So really think there's like a person to person difference mm. on how that's done, you know? And um, so different teachers, I think are, just have that kind of openness to hold on to the essence and, and understand the, the situation being always different as to where you're sharing that, you know? Um, so I think, I think there is, I think a difference as well with a lot of the Tibetan teachers are growing up in a situation where whatever your degree of spiritual practices, where you're still growing up in a culture where all the iconography is around you, it's, it's all mixed in the water wherever you are, you know? So I think that's probably a difference for us in our culture too. I, would, I wouldn't say spiritual iconography is mixed in the same degree it's probably mixed in those cultures would you agree yeah 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 definitely yeah yeah no like in tibet like it's just everywhere yeah you know and yeah. um i'm reminded of like teachers that i worked with when i lived there for a year that you know they were just i, I remember going on our sort of like our holiday break and uh one of the teachers was like cool i'm gonna go do prostrations for the next month and I was like, you're, you're going to do what? And, and she was like, yeah, like, um, I don't have the time to sit and do all the preliminary practices for retreat all at once. So mm. I use my, my breaks from school to like get a chunk done. Wow. And, you know, I, I think that was such a cool idea. Um, because, you know, he, even I think for most people that are practicing, you know, these traditions in the West, it's like, it's this very like all or nothing thing. You know, yeah. like, that, that's how I was. Yeah. I was like, oh, I want to go do a three-year retreat. Well, I have to quit doing everything and just devote my life to doing this retreat, right? Yeah. Doing these preliminary practices instead of the way it's just sort of integrated there. And like, even if you don't want to sit down and, you know, meditate all day um, or even, you know, maybe feel like you have, um, you know, a regular meditation practice, a teacher is going to be like, cool, here's some mantras that you can say, or, you know, do circumambulations every day. And that's a mindful practice that you can do, or use this prayer wheel. Like there's all these ways that the, the practices are so integrated into their culture. Yeah. And that's, yeah. that's one thing I noticed that's different. 
Yeah, it, it, it agreed. And, and also a culture where I mean, we live in the, the capitalist, very work centered, you know, productivity culture, right? So like the time, right. of, the time of day, the time of your life to dedicate to that, you kind of got to do your own battle of making that space in our culture, right? right? That that might not be the same, probably in other places, I, I presume, you know, you don't have to make the argument for why you need that space in your life, or you need that kind of time. And we still got to carve that out here. You know, yeah. um, and, and I'm with you on that. that I, I remember at first, we're first learning about stuff. I, I remember just thinking, well, it's only so far this is going to go because I'm not joining the monastery. You know, I'm mm. not I'm not moving out to the mountainside and going to be a hermit. So I guess this is going to be a limited situation, you know, um, and I've definitely come around on that. And, and I think a, a lot of us have just recognizing that. That is one way to go, and there are people doing that. But actually, this life and the situation we have right now is actually a great situation as well. It's maybe even the ideal situation for us individually, right? Like this integrating yeah. into different things. So we might not have the same kind of maps for how that looks, you know? But it doesn't mean it's not an ideal situation for our practice, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It gives whatever we're going through gives us those opportunities, you know, to practice and yeah. to to have those realizations. And yeah, and in a way, it's it's really uh, rich with experience, right? It's like you gotta you gotta figure out how to make this work in the middle of this, you know, environment that we're yeah. in and navigating. Like you said, this you know sort of capitalism driven. Uh, sort of environment rather than going and sitting in a cave or, you know, having people support you like, Oh, you want to go do retreat for three years? Yeah, cool. We'll, we'll help you out with that. Yeah. Right? Like, yeah, yeah. Most people are just going to kind of look at you funny. Um, <laughs> you know, if you say that here, like, well, yeah. what, are you, what, are, what are your plans for the next three years? Like an interview question. I'm going to go be in retreat yeah what? <laughs> would you be open to paying my rent in the meantime and send, sending <laughs> right. food you know I'll come back with something to show yeah yeah it's just a different situation right it would so but yeah it, it must be the ideal one for us mm, for whatever yeah. reason you know and and i think within you know there's these sort of um not sort of there's these uh, you know, unbroken lineages of the within the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, right? And it's always been something that I've been fond of as far maybe what's drawn me on a subconscious level to the the Kagyu lineage is mm. as opposed to maybe sort of this, let's call it like idealized, um, you know, very serene, like, perfect monk sort of looking um, idea that a lot of people have when they think of the Buddha or Buddhists, the, the Kagyu lineage is full of these misfits mm -hmm. and like people that like, you know, started off as criminals or started off with like a lot of yeah. human, human material to work with. Right. Yeah. And yeah. then figured out how to transform that into Dharma, into, you know, realization and into, compassion and wisdom. So yeah, it's like, it's really cool that we have these examples of sort of what we're working with, right? Like, I'm, I don't know, I can't speak for anybody else. I don't feel 
like a monk. I don't feel like I have very much realization. I feel like lots of days I feel like, um, you know, uh, Isaac wrestling with the angel, you know, of like trying to, to remember my Dharma practice and really like embody it. Um, then something that's just completely sunk in and, you know, uh, walking with this complete serenity. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. That's a good point. So I guess I should even say it's a totally different culture. What you brought up, those Mahasiddha stories are, are examples from those things, right? Of people just working with a situation like this one's a barkeep and this one's a prince and this one's this. Everyone's got their own trappings and everyone's got their own. And this one's a musician. And, and then they got taught through that situation, right? Like not, yeah. not leave that and isolate, but here's how it is through your own life. Uh, I'm glad you brought that, that, that back up, man. Yeah. And like to take it back to sort of the Tibetan culture, like there's so many examples that I ran into during my time there of people that really embody that it's like, mm. you know, like, you know, they're going to invite you in to their home and, you know, feed you or, you know, sit and have tea with you, you know, or give you the front seat of the Jeep that you're going to be riding in for the next eight hours, even though they're like a llama. And like, I'm like, no, no, I don't want to do that. Like this <laughs> is making me feel uncomfortable, you know? Um, so just these like wonderful opportunities to just really embody uh, Dharma and, yeah. and just really like live it as an example. You yeah. Know? yeah. 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 So um, I'm curious uh, if you would share a little bit about your work, you know, just kind of looking over your bio, it was talking about that you've integrated Buddhist philosophy with, um, you know, psychotherapy and um, psychology and, you know, sort of as an alternative to some traditional, uh, you know, more traditional methods. So what does that look like? And how did you arrive at that? Uh, for yourself yeah yeah well i mean in the way that i'm sure your work is for you like as we learn all these things you can't help but integrate it right it's like in there in your head you know or in there in your practice so inevitably it starts coming out and so i, I mean the way i work is a, a reflection of my own learning and healing and continued recovery process in and of itself right it's like so i can't isolate any one piece of that so part of that was being a client in my own psychotherapy part of that was connecting with the lamas and the teachers part of that was reconnecting with my body happened to be through yoga practice for me part of it was through loving supportive relationships and reforming what that idea is you know so all these pieces mm. and i don't know that you could take out any one and i'm not saying that's the formula for everybody but i think i think there's something like that that's a little bit more rounded and holistic where there's no one thing that probably has everything we all need or has all the answers or something like that and without there is the risk of bopping around it too much you know we have so much available to us now you know even in any one of those categories that you could sort of never get any depth on any of it but on the other side i think there's something about the holistic approach we need some different things from different angles or different ingredients that, that do different pieces of the work you know and not any one of them is is going to be the, the thing for us so inevitably i just started integrating that to how i talk to people so much more often now for instance in psychotherapy people are checking in and what the embodied experience was like i think 20 30 years ago that was not what psychotherapy was it was all 
very up in the head, right? So now we're integrating, like recognizing the lack of separation, even calling it mind-body connection is like a misnomer, right? It's like the mind-body. Yeah. It's just, it's a thing. <laughs> yeah. So right. it is a thing. <laughs> so when people are sharing their experiences or talking about things, you know, it's like trying to understand it from that level. And a lot of people are maybe feeling not integrated in that way and, and learning how to integrate that. And then the, the meditation piece on one level at a minimum, I, I really don't know how to do the psychotherapy work without some kind of awareness practice, right? There's, we can talk about things that have happened in the past and we can sort of retrospectively tinker and look at things. But until we learn to go, Oh, right now, look what's happening. Right. You can take the, all that understanding of your experience thus far and have it inform understanding why you're experiencing right now, the way you're experiencing it. I think it's hard to renegotiate your relationship with that experience or even transform that experience without I'm aware of what's happening right now. Right. So without even getting into full on Buddhist philosophy, I'm really not sure on how to do the psychotherapy work without like the awareness piece. Sometimes that means practice. And then for others, it might mean our shared space is like, okay, that awareness is not there yet. I'm sort of for the time being serving as that role like sharing that aloud and, and bringing the attention to that so that then that, that awareness develops for that person. Then, then you, you back off it and it goes on its own. Uh, but other times that could be certainly boosted by the practice. And then the whole philosophy piece, it's different for each person individually, how much they want to go into that. But I think there are just certain things like certain things that Western psychology has some strengths in and also things it doesn't address just like Buddhist philosophy and psychology, there are strengths and things it doesn't address. And then there's overlap. So it's for different pieces. It's good to go to different wells. You know? Yeah. As a, as an amateur, uh, I've always felt that there was a lot of overlap. Um, and that was one of the strengths of, of Buddhism is like, it's less of like, there is a religious aspect to Buddhism, but, to me, it's always seemed like the religious aspect is more uh, a feature of the culture in which Buddhism has been integrated with. Yeah. And so like, that's why the lineages and traditions that, you know, you know, sort of flourished in China have a very Chinese cultural feeling to them. Yeah. Tibetan would be, you know, similar in terms of, you know, and you could speak to this probably better than I can as a, a bond practitioner, right? Um, but the the system is 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 sound and like it stands on its own without sort of the religious aspects of which the framework has kind of come through and those that framework is super aligned to like a lot of really solid psychological sort of you know wisdom and values and things that can be um, you know, integrated and implemented to improve people's lives. I think you're right on. I, and even, I can't, I can't remember the exact quote, but I've even heard the Dalai Lama say something around the lines of this being a psychology, a philosophy. It's also yeah. maybe a religion for some, but at its heart, I, I think you're right on. That's it's, it's a, it's a psychology around the experience of reality we have, right? It's a psychology mm -hmm. around 
or the disconnection from the direct experience of reality and what comes of that. So it's a psychological system. There are still attributes of that, right, that that are focused on there that aren't touched on at all in Western and, and, and vice versa. You know, it may be more in recent developments of Western psychology, but historically it hasn't had much of a take on the ultimate perspective in terms of like ultimate relative. Right. It's very it's very concrete of this relative reality of like I'm an independent individual self. And so it's strong on the developmental side. Right. It's, it's strong on the like develop a strong, healthy sense of self, you know, but then you look at the Buddhist or the bond psychology and it's like, whoa, self, there's the whole problem right there. Right. So, and neither of them are wrong. There's just one's got a relative take on the self and one's got an ultimate. So that's just one example of where they, they come in different, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And that relative piece is, is important as well. Before we started recording, I was, sharing something that was kind of coming up as a curiosity around that of, you know, how, how do we keep sort of the, the ultimate view within Buddhism, right? The, of that we in, inherently are not um, a fixed self and that we have this Buddha nature at our core, right? That that's yeah. what is solid is like our, our innate, nature and everything else is, you know, just sort of a, a result of our circumstances, uh, you, which some people might call karma. Yeah. But, you know, we could even just make it simpler than that and say, like, you know, the experiences that you've had in this lifetime, the family you've grown up in, the culture you've, you know, uh, grown up in, all those things that, you know, you identify as as that you, right? Yeah. Um, but how do we, how do we keep that recognition and kind of like operate from that place in an authentic way that isn't like a form of spiritual bypassing or i guess trump trump and ribbache would say spiritual materialism right where we're making that into the identity and not actually integrating the the teachings yeah yeah i think you're naming the two extremes that are important for us to be looking at right and yeah and the antidote on those two extremes i think is the got wisdom on one side and compassion on the other right and, and those things help keep us grounded or open you know depending on which way we find ourselves leaning i think for a lot of us introducing this idea of buddha nature you know I, I know for me i think for a lot of people like it's we're walking around with this story about what's what's wrong with us or what's missing or what's the deficit or like if I just work hard enough or if I just do this thing or just change this about me, like then I'll be okay, you know, or these are the particular conditions I need to meet in order to be lovable. But all of me is not lovable as, as is. So on that side of the thing, there's both compassion work to learn to love ourselves relationally and be in loving relationships. But there's also that ultimate view of Buddha nature. Like, well, what if it's that there is on some level, of our being something that's already perfect and couldn't be fucked with. You can't mess it up, unstainable. Mm -hmm. And we learned all the stories on top of it that there are the deficits or there are the conditions. We learn conditional love. So we build a whole personality, our whole life around trying to meet those conditions. So I think there's something for us to unlearn about that, which is helpful for that ultimate perspective of like, look, we're not any of these stories. We're not limited by any of these thoughts. We're not limited by this habit of mind 
that we keep going to is something beyond that that could never be touched by any of that. But then on the other side, you mentioned bypassing. There's a way that we can not deal with any of that. You got to get real intimate with the knot that we've made in order to realize that we're not that. You can't just go like, skip that, you know, or let everything come up that comes up without any responsibility for it and be an asshole and be like, well, it's Buddha nature. Like, right. you know, and it, it, there's a lot of dodging around that for sure. And I think we're all, we're all going to do this because a lot of that not is, is the, the pieces that are hard to look at. Right. And we're guarded and defended and it's vulnerable to go there, or we don't like that part of ourselves or something like that. So you don't want to look at it or we don't want to look at what we're capable of. Um, so some balance of the two, the, the, the compassion and the wisdom. And then if we can go too far on that wisdom side, right. Get checked out, get nihilistic, too spaced out, like, and with no grounding and no compassion for the fact that like you can have that view fully intact. You don't lose the relative experience. It doesn't surpass the relative or it's not better than just the other side of right. the coin. Right. So we, we can lose that compassion for like, could be totally enlightened. I'm still going to experience nullness and Jonathanness. We have to hold that compassion. Like as long as I got this body, <laughs> you know, we're going to, we're going to feel that. So there's danger on both sides, right? <laughs> Absolutely. For me, there was that that was one area where that, you know, adversity came up as an opportunity to like re-examine some things, some hard truths within myself, right? Is, you know, I've um I I I there's a part of me that wishes that I had been practicing meditation for 20 years solid, but I've been practicing Buddhism for 20 years. Yeah. And um, you know, a few years ago when I started to go through this sort of, uh, let's call it spiritual awakening in sort of the modern vernacular, um, I really only had my mindfulness, um, sort of resources and I had this intellectual view of, you know, what we're talking about, right. Of, of, you know, non-duality of, um, not an independent self and sort of this meta ultimate view. And so when things would come up that were uncomfortable, instead of like really being connected to them, being present with them, being, you know, feeling them, it was almost like I could just apply this lens of like, well, this isn't really happening. And if I just watch it, eventually it's going to move through me and be gone, you know, just yeah. like, just like a sort of like a mundane thought of like, you know, if I'm sitting there and I'm meditating and I, like the thought comes up, like, man, a cheeseburger sounds really great right now. Like that doesn't derail my whole meditation experience. Yeah. You know, it's really easy to like sort of label that as thinking and come back to my breath. Right. Um, and then I found myself in this place where things started to thaw out, you know, trauma that was stuck in the body started to like come up to the surface because I wasn't suppressing it any longer yeah. and i was doing more introspective and investigative work on myself yeah. through various means and all of a sudden i was in this place where i was like oh shit this the mindfulness isn't really helping me right now yeah and it may it's not even that the mindfulness wasn't helping it's just that i was bypassing yeah that my authentic experience which was you know in that moment experiencing suffering experiencing like the pain of, you know, these things that had happened earlier on in my life. 
And the only resource that I had was to try to like bypass my way through it. Yeah. And it just, it stopped working. Stopped working. And yeah. it was really, it was really scary, you know, yeah. when it first started happening. Cause it was like, Oh shit, what do I do now? Yeah. Here's this, here's this tool that I've had for so long that I've relied on and it's not helping me. It doesn't feel like it's cutting through. Yeah. So what am I going to do now to, to change that? You know, in, in your description there, you're also redefining how we're looking at how that's helping us. Right. I think you're naming mm. some of that view that we all might come into of like, Oh, mindfulness or meditation, it's going to help like make thoughts or emotions or traumatic things or whatever it may be that comes up that go away. Like it's somehow going to flatten it out and make it all like quiet space in there. And that's yeah. right. Such a common misconception for us all. And and then it starts to get maybe quiet or you cr start creating enough of a safe environment in that internal relationship. where like, Oh, that stuff I defended against stuff. I protected understandably. Mm. Now it's safe enough to come up, you know? And then, yeah, in terms of it's not helping, like it's not going away. No, but it's helping like, oh, this can get the light of day now. I get to feel this now. I get to, and then I get to see this and hold it lovingly now. Very helpful, but uncomfortable, yeah. you know? And right. I think for all of us, and then especially in a world where meditation or mindfulness practice aside, we don't get to just sit in our quiet and feel things, right? There's, there's stuff yep. pulling us every damn direction outside of our mind, never mind our own mind. It's to take right. some getting used to, to go, oh, I'm just going to sit in this. I'm just going to be in this mud. But that's the key, right? Yeah. That's that's the yeah. Healing. Yeah, we're not encouraged to to sit with that, to be with it. And yeah, you're right. Um, you know, just as you were saying that, it just kind of dawned on me of like, oh, yeah, this is this is what I teach my clients now. It's like, especially within the context of like breath work and, he, you know, sort of healing is like, you've got to trust the process. You've got to open to whatever's happening and be willing to sit with it. And maybe that's not all going to happen today. Yeah. That's okay too. Yeah. You know, it's, it is a process and it is something that you learn to feel more comfortable and, and trust going into but yeah, it is an opportunity to like move through something to release it. Um, I had, <laughs> I had that experience last week with a client, like, you know, it was their first week in the treatment center uh -huh. and they came to, you know, probably my most activating group where we're doing a lot of like activating breath work and after, and they, you know, I, I gave, I gave the group like a bunch of different resources of like, Hey, you've got to trust yourself here everybody's nervous system's different. Yeah. The, the key is to find that edge and push a little bit against it without getting overwhelmed. And here's some things that you can do if you start to feel overwhelmed. And in the group, they were, I could tell they were going through something, Yeah. but they weren't doing any of the sort of, you know, supportive resourcing. So I'm like, okay, great. They're just, they're, they're going for it. This is great. Yeah. And then after the group, they were really upset and I, you know, kind of checked in with them and, and they said, well, what, why, like, why is this happening? Like, this is not what I expected. I thought I was coming here to like, get away from this kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, And it was yeah. like, and it was like, Hey, like, I totally get it. And I, I understand how 
challenging and like kind of ungrounded this feels right now. Yeah. And you're doing really good work, you know, and like this stuff is going to sit there in the body until you're willing, willing and able to like move through it and be with it and love it. And I know this isn't what you expected, but the fact that it came up to me means that you feel safe enough to go there and that it was ready. Like it was ready to go. Yeah. Right. Like, cause the, we don't always get into the deepest, darkest parts of like the shadow or the suppressed stuff right off the bat. Right. Like we really have to make ourselves or allow ourselves to go there sometimes. Yeah. 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 There's a reason why it's in the shadow, right. Or there's a reason why it is called that. And yeah. And those defenses, those protective parts that hiding it from ourselves was at one time well-intended and loving. Yes. Right. I mean, it was, yeah. So we don't get upset at that. Yeah. It's like that, that part, if we think about parts where, you know, that part is trying to protect me, but it's just like a battle ax that doesn't have the wisdom to know that this is not the time. So how do we, yes. how do we love say, thank you. You don't have to go anywhere, but we're good. I got, I got this now. Right. And, and, and like you said, I think that I, I think about that with trauma work as a whole, it's, it's some, is a combination of like, okay, I've got the skill sets and some things that I've learned that work for me. If things were to come up and, and I would, would feel like that was getting out of hand, right? So there's that kind of like learning and that's a little bit different for everybody. We can throw suggestions out there, but that's a little different for everybody, right? Um, yeah. And then you've got that combined with that, you name that safety, that sort of internal relationship environment, which someone can help you with by holding that, like you hold for people when they're doing breath work or right? we hold that space. But then everyone's got to get to a spot on their own where internally they've got the internal space that says, I can, I can feel that safety. I can attune like that. I can create that secure attachment environment, attachment in the Western sense, not the Buddhist sense. Like it's that secure relationship environment within which it's safe to go to the darkest places. And I still love that. And I can hold it. And I know what to do. There's, there's enough spaciousness to hold that. I think it goes back to the wisdom and compassion. There's enough space to hold what comes up with compassion without having to look away or skip it or be partialized about it. And then it gets its time of day, that kid in there who's been lovingly protected by the, you know, by the battle axes gets to speak his or her mind and share what they're experiencing and feeling. And you go, all right, wow. All right. I hear that now. And I got you and we, I can get you in a different way. If you want to do that, what do you need? hundred percent. Couldn't agree more. And you know, it's, it's so like wrapped up in my work, you know, it's like, I'm like, there's some people that I'm working with that, you know, and I'm sure you, you're similar, you know, that are like interested in psychedelics and Sometimes I go like, well, hold on, like before we blast off to Jupiter, like let's get into orbit, like yeah. let's feel our feet on the ground. Let's like, yeah. let's figure out how to get to the moon and back, you know, like let's get in touch with the body and the breath and, and start to dip into these areas without taking away 
that like whole sovereignty of being able to go, okay, that's enough for today. Like yeah. I'm going to go back to a more grounded, like breath, a more, you know, I can orient myself. I can open my eyes and, you know, all these, all these resources that I have that kind of go out the window to a certain degree. If you, once you, you know, eat a big bag of mushrooms or yeah. drink ayahuasca or yeah. something like that. Right. Yeah. And it's not that those things don't have a good set and setting or that they don't work or helpful for some people, but it's like, let's, let's, let's be grounded and resourced in this work. Yeah. Right. Not yeah. just like, Oh, I heard this is what is going to help me. So I'm just going to jump into that. Yeah. I'm glad you're bringing it up. This is obviously, you know, the, the Renaissance is happening and yeah. for better and worse or whatever. And, um, it is coming up a lot in therapy space. And, and I think we've got on the one side, the danger of, I'm going to take the magic pill and that's going to do the work, which is never true. Right. It, mm. And we've, we've got some of these intense means, right. Whether it be some meditations or some breath work or some psychedelics or any number of things that, that can speed up things that might take longer without some help. Right. So right. there is that bonus, but I think what I'm hearing you say too, without that, without integrating that into some, all right, how, how do we build up some skill sets and build up that relationship and build up like some sovereignty first and know what we're going into any of that for and how are we going to come out of that and take the wisdom from it without now being attached to the intense mean or to the special state. Yeah, but yeah, so I think we're all learning how to use these big chainsaws you know <laughs> right they're good tools for for things when they're used right and and, and well directed and skillfully used but also fucking dangerous you know maybe right. devastating yeah even with breath work you know like a lot of people including myself get our start with these really expansive kind of um you know holotropic states yeah. that can be achieved with the breath yeah and we're sort of getting out of our body. We're not really being connected to, um, you know, having our feet on the ground and our eyes open and be being in this mindful present awareness. I've thought it and I've had so many clients come out of their first or first couple, you know, big sort of peak breathwork experiences. And they're like, Oh, is that what meditation is supposed to feel like? Because they're getting into like such a sort of um, like a yin, uh, you know, yoga, um, you know, yoga nidra type of like a yogic trance where like all of a sudden the thoughts are gone. Yeah. And you're just in this space of like stillness and you're kind of outside of space and time and you might have some really cool insights that come up in that space, but like, the for me at least the the contrast to my normal mind and being in that space is really really stark yeah. and it's like whoa this is different um and so it's i think it's really easy to sort of get attached to that blasting off or not being in the body when there's so much more value in like hey let's like let's learn about awareness like let's learn to connect with the breath let's connect with what's happening in the body. Um, let's learn to 
use the breath to help regulate the nervous system yeah. so that when you are doing this work, um, whether it's with, you know, plant medicines or breath work or different, you know, advanced meditations, there's something that you can take away from that. Yeah. You know, there's, there, you're, you're more present with it because your, your nervous system's more, you know, acclimated, more present. And then there's a more opportunity to integrate it. Yeah. You know, like I always think about like going on a roller coaster as a kid. When I think about it now, I might have like this very brief glimpses of a memory of that really intense experience, right? At the time it was intense. You know, when when I got off the roller coaster, it was like, oh fuck, what was that? Yeah, like yeah. that was that was crazy, right? And then what is that like the next day, the next week, the next month, 20 years from now? Like yeah. I don't remember much from that. So it's like, I don't want anything, whether it's ayahuasca or breath work or any other modality. If, I, if my intention is to do some work with it, yeah, I don't want it to end up as that experience. Yeah. Like I want to be able to, to what, what am I learning from this? What am I integrating from it? How is this being embodied in the rest of my life? Yeah. Yeah. Well said, we don't want to get attached to that and, I had a teacher who used to say that the special states like like bliss and luminosity, non-conceptual stillness, like de depending on how we're oriented, if we're heavy thinkers, we get caught on non-conceptual stillness. If we're not usually in our body and relaxing, you get caught up on bliss. Or if you're visually oriented, you get caught up in the luminosity. It's like, and that none of those are like the things to get attached to, but those are the biggest, those become hurdles. You know, at first, just getting some practice going is the hurdle and distraction and, and sleepiness and laxity and all that stuff. And then down the line, yeah. the special states are the distractions. And people go, oh, this must be it. This is what I'm looking for. And right. it's just like you're going West Coast and that's just the exit to Vegas. Like, keep going. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> keep going. Don't get distracted, you know. And um, right. I, I, the preliminaries, as you were talking about this, come to mind, too. I, I've come to learn. I think that's the place for these things non-drone preliminaries and, and i think we're finding our ways of doing that in the west i think therapy might be one of those types of things but there's i had a teacher who used to just teach pointing out instructions go right to zokchen go it, within you know people would start within a week and by the end of the week they'd be doing these things and on the one hand that's that's great but not surprisingly then it became oh, this special thing that happened on the retreat. And and this same particular teacher would advocate for like, oh, you don't need preliminaries. You just, we have these instructions that that like point out the emptiness of all that. Why would you need to do that? Da, 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 da. And there's some truth to that ultimately, but that's not true for 99.9% .9 of us, right? We got to right. like create these conditions for any any realization or awakening or anything like that to actually stick. So like all the preliminary practices from the traditional paths, and then maybe I wonder what you think about this, what maybe our versions of this are there, but they're all little angles on undoing that knot. Any one given preliminary doesn't take care of all the knot, but it's gonna, it's gonna loosen a couple pieces from one angle or another, right? It's gonna start loosening particular attachments or some of our habitual ways of thinking that are not serving. So that, then when introduced to something else, okay, maybe that's actually going to land 
Maybe that's got fertile ground. It's going to be a little bit more familiar and accessible without the, all the knots. Yeah. Yeah. I think what's coming up for me with that is the value of working with someone that can, uh, be a support or a guide or a teacher or a guru, you know, we can, we can put these different labels on it, but, um, you know, within the context of Buddhism, they talk about there being 84,000 different, you know, methods and teachings, right? Now, whether that's literal, mm. I don't tend to think of it as literal. Right, right. I tend to think of it as we have, there's, there's this myriad, almost endless number of different sort of things about being human and neuroses and, you know, um, you know, humanness, yeah. right? And so there's yeah. an antidote for each of those. And just when we're whatever situation that we're in, most of the time, it's hard for us to see those things that are so close to us. Yeah. You know, it's like being able to see what's on my forehead. I can't see that until I look in the mirror. Right. Yeah. And that therapist, that guide, that coach, that, you know, teacher is like, is acting as that mirror yeah. and they can, you know, sort of skillfully guide us or give us suggestions about, Hey, well, I think this practice might be really helpful for this thing that you can't see because it's so close to you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Whereas you might, you might stumble upon that through a book or through practice, but how much faster is that going to go working with someone that can be holding up that mirror all the time rather yeah. than just hoping you're going to like find your way into it. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. Lovingly to tell you when you have shit on your face, I <laughs> like how you said that, <laughs> right. Right? like lovingly yeah. and skillfully. And then, yeah, to not have to think, I've got to therefore learn the 84,000. And if, if not, then I'm not going to mm. get it. But there, there's a mm. bundle of those for each of us that would be most right. effective. Um, yeah. I, I think you're right. It does help to have those like loving teachers who can hold the kind of space as free of their own obscuration on your experience as, as possible. Right? right. Not totally free from that unless you're totally awakened and enlightened, but ideally someone who's it's more minimal or in there at least aware of this is how I tend to obscure and this is how I throw my stuff and trip on people. Let me try to not do that in this space and lovingly share. How about this? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so now that we've established that, uh, this, <laughs> I think my next question is going to be a little bit ironic or funny. Um, what are what are some of the things that new practitioners um, should be aware of? Or maybe a different way to say it would be, if you could go back and talk to yourself as a new practitioner, like what's the advice that you'd give yourself? Like what are the things that you wish you knew back then that you know now? I'm going to loop back to the Buddha nature piece, uh, just in that I know when I first approached practice and mindfulness and Buddhism and all of it, I was still coming from this. I think it's a Western perspective, like the self-improvement path idea, like not yet good enough or not yet meeting those conditions. But if I work hard enough, I'll get to that. And I think that the Buddha nature notion, which is, is the idea um, just to share for others, right? That we're all naturally endowed with the potential for these loving qualities of heart mind. They're, they're always right there beyond our thinking mind, beyond what we believe that self is, there's something wider than that that's already there. 
like as standard issue sentient beings the variable is only like whether or not we've realized that and the degree to which we realize that the more we can operate out of that mind space and then natural qualities come of that so it flips the idea of like what improvement or what self-improvement is or why we're doing any of the practices it's not that if i keep doing mindfulness or keep practicing compassion or keep realizing emptiness any of those things then i'll be the thing the improvement is the idea of being able to see through the obscurations more and more and more we're removing more and more, not getting rid of even all of them, but I can see through more and more of those clouds. And I'm more and more familiar with this thing that's already right here that could never be improved upon or um, or get worse. Yeah. Right. So it just flips the idea of improvement. Like, so to me, even if you're just starting mindfulness, if we're going at it with the idea of like, oh, if I just get mindful, if I just get more concentrated and more aware, like, then I'll be a better person. Then I'll be a good this. Then I'll be a good that. Like, that's going to keep reiterating that conditional love thing. It's going to keep that trip going. It's going to keep it to like a certain outcome. And, and I think if we can all unhook from that a little bit more, that to me is the heart of it. I, I say I'm, I'm a recovering Irish Catholic. And, 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 <laughs> And I don't believe this is the heart of the messaging from there, but to speak from how it was taught to me by those in my spiritual world that taught it to me, the message was like, you're bad. You better try to be better and make up for that. But don't think you're as good as, you know, so-and-so, because then you're arrogant. Like there was nowhere, there was no, it was a trap. There was nowhere to go. And it just, it taught me how to be guilty you know, and yeah. feel shitty about myself. And so yeah. I, I feel like I'm, I'm flipping. And, and that, even if that's not your faith tradition, I think that is uh, pervasive in our culture. That is permeated, uh -huh. right? Um, <laughs> I'm laughing because I think a lot of us have that, or maybe it's just the German Catholic in my, you know, ancestry that, that I'm finding, you know, uh, <laughs> a similarity to in what you're saying. Because I remember feeling like, I just what one one distinct memory that I have, and this is a couple of years before I decided to to join the Dharma Moon training program, was sitting and meditating in the morning with with my partner, with my girlfriend, and you know we get done, and she said, you know, you should teach meditation, and literally without even thinking about it, my like first thought, best thought response was to who. Like, yeah. yeah, you know, like I've, enough. I, I've really glossed on to, or, you know, glommed onto, um, the, the whole like guru worship sort of part of the Tibetan tradition of like yeah. the teacher is up here, yeah. you know, they're sitting on a throne yeah. there. And even the ones that are fully enlightened and realized they're going to sit there and go. I'm just a humble monk. Like, yeah. I, I don't really know anything, but since you guys asked me, yeah. I'll tell you, right? Yeah. Like there's such humility and like humbleness yeah. to that approach. And so I was like, well, shoot, if this fully realized being is like taking on that level of humility, what, 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 you know, <laughs> where do I come in? Like what, what kind of hubris do I have to be able to teach these things? Like, I love this, um, there's like a poetic way that uh, it's said in in some of like the 
you know, traditional prayers or sort of like um, prayers to the person's guru where they say something like, I'm, I'm just a, like a parrot that's just repeating words that I've been taught, like, as opposed to yeah. you that like has really integrated and is embodying yeah. this Buddhahood, right? And so I always thought about that, like, okay, I'm, I can, I can be a parrot and like, teach some mindfulness to like how to focus on your breath and things like that. But what, what right do I have to put myself in that same category? Yeah, yeah, there is rethinking of that. The, yeah, th that guru word has, has been a little thorn things, right? And, yeah, and, and, and that has been severely abused, right? So there's, right, it's good for us to have the eye up on that. But then you go on the opposite end of the spectrum, I don't know if this is like a particular New England or Boston thing, but there's also like the cultural <laughs> overlay of like, oh, look at this fucking guy. Who's he? Right. He you know, it's like, <laughs> oh, here he comes. You know, it's like whatever right. topic, like God forbid you're anything other than like completely self-deprecating. They're like, look at this guy. Right. Yeah. So it's like we've got we've internalized this, like, don't ever think anything good about yourself or you got anything to offer anybody or possible, you know. Yeah. Um, but then there's, you know, I have a I have a my root teacher now he's he's bon geshe and he refers to himself as a tibetan dog regularly and he's just like i'm just a tibetan dog don't listen to me but look this is what this says and he's humble he's definitely i would say more realized than than he gives himself credit but i think there's uh -huh. this flip of recognizing right where the role of the teacher is actually not very important right there's it's like a minimal it's a, the job of a decent signpost. Like, it's good to have the signpost. It's good for it to be clear. You know, it shouldn't be covered with a lot of shit and mud. It, it should clearly point out where it's needing to go in the way that's best for the person who's seeing it. But like, but that's it. You know, you're you're not giving anybody anything. And it's not that like any one teacher is they're special. They've got the special stuff. So if you hang around with them, interact with them, they're going to give you the special stuff. Like yeah. that's how we've propped them up too high. And then people prop themselves up too high and it gets really bad and dangerous and we don't trust ourselves. And, and, and the whole point is that they, they're pointing out what's already true about you and then you step away, right? Or you, you say like, here, I'm just sharing the practice instructions and then I'm going to get out of your way. I've got yeah. nothing to give you that you're not going to discover on your own. Mm. Um, I think something healing from the trauma of not feeling very good about ourselves combined with really understanding the role of the teacher and not being anything more than it really is or should be can help us take a better spot in, in this, in this realm. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I see that, you know, all the time, you know, in, in these other contexts that I work in as well, you know, with breath work or, you know, um, integration coaching, it's like, I'm there holding the space. I'm there. I'm not there to heal you. Yeah. And even, you know, one of my breathwork mentors during our training, he said, you know, just get used to the idea that you're basically a pillow jockey. Like you're there to hold yeah. pillows. So that when people start flailing around, they're not going to hurt themselves. Yeah. Like yeah. Get, divorce yourself of this idea that you're doing anything. Yeah. You know, and, yeah. and I still see it, you know, people will come out of an experience and they're like, thank you so much for that. And I'm like, you did that. Yeah. Like, you, you did the work. Back. Yeah. 
you know, like it's, it's not me at all, you know? Oh yeah. But you know, you created the container, blah, blah, blah. Okay. Thanks. You know, you're right. And I'm not inside your mind, like working all this stuff out. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're naming a crucial difference in anything that we'd all be susceptible to is like, who doesn't like hearing something nice said to them or like, thank you. So it's easy to get sucked into that whole thing, but you have to do what you just did is like immediately reflect like, that would be a fault, a misrepresentation of what happened here, right? Right. I held a safe space for something for you to do, you know, yeah. entirely on your own with others around. Right. And maybe, maybe from the, you know, to sort of rewind what we were talking about, maybe that's a reason for these great Tibetan teachers to be so humble and to practice that much humility is like it's not one person coming up to them after a breathwork circle being like, oh my God, you know, there's people bowing to them all the time. Mm. There's people putting them in the best seats, giving them the best of everything. I would imagine that it would be, there's a lot of temptation there. At least I putting myself in that situation of like starting to believe some of that stuff, like believing, you know, what people are saying about me being so great. Um, and, you know, we're, we're seeing that now in the midst of this renaissance of like, yeah. you know, people where their ego or their narcissism or, you know, some of their, um, their human, you know, traits are getting amplified by the set and setting that they're in, whether that's the medicines they're working with yeah. or the community that's surrounding them. And it's, you know, it's easy for them to kind of step up onto that pedestal instead of being like, oh, hold on a second, let me reevaluate and, and do some more work. Yeah, yeah. To use that skillfully to show like, oh, look how both sides of this relationship playing out right now is not serving either of us, anybody. Like, how, yeah. how do you lovingly point that out and go like, we're not going to do that here. We're not going to do that, here, yeah. you know? And, and let's not, I think this, let's also not pedestalize the Tibetan or any other culture here. Cause it's rife sure. with all that shit too. Right. There's, yep. it all happens in all these spaces uh, for better and worse. So we could find examples yeah. of all of these. Yeah. I liked um, when David was on the show, he, and we, the, the topic of guru yoga came up briefly, you know, yeah. this, this practice of, you know, kind of visualizing yourself as this idealized guru um, you know, figure. And it, I, the point that I brought up was that it's really easy for us in the culture and, you know, environment that we've grown up in as Westerners to um, go awry with that or like, yeah. you know, sort of apply some of that Western thinking or guilt or idealism um, onto that idea. And he pointed out that you're not during the guru yoga practice, the guru is not separate from you. They're looking the same direction of you, like sort of overlaid onto you, right? Yeah, it's not yeah. that you're looking at them and they're separate. Yeah. You're really, you know, you're just really visualizing and embodying all those qualities that are also within you. Yeah. Right. That's right. Yeah. And, and so most of us, with those visualizations are the, like, you can see a Tonka that's over there. All those visualizations or representations are meant to be like not as a oh thing out there give me some of the mm -hmm. stuff but they're just they're representations right. of internal internal characteristics that we've lost familiarity with that we don't see that in ourselves right and then with yeah. with guru yoga i mean there's two words 
and that may be worth unpacking for the audience in that, you know, I know I have my cultural reactivity to both of those words and, and have an idea of what that looks like and what that means. Right. And like, so guru, we've yeah. come has come to mean some teacher that's get propped way off. Right. Which it, it means that in one way. Right. And then yoga, we come to associate with like the embodied physical aspect of hatha yoga practice. Right. And guru in and of itself means the thing that points out reality, right? So sometimes that's a person that points out reality and acts from that. Sometimes it's a teaching that's our guru. Sometimes it's, you know, you're walking by and you see a flower the right way and that's the guru. Um, and then it's our own mind, our own experience that is that reality and never separate from. So the job of all the external gurus is to point out internal guru. So the job of all the external reality reminders and helpers is to help familiarize ourselves with that reality that we are too, right? So we do this thing where we, that's become a personified idea, right? It's like a, of a person that is a special person and we lift them up. And then yoga just means union with, So it's, it's, it just means union with reality. The reality is that I'm that too, not in the egoic way. But like my yeah. ultimate nature is that just like everybody else and this example I'm using to help familiarize her. So, and we're just seeing each other in that way. Yeah. Beautifully, beautifully said. And, you know, what are maybe, what are some other ways that we practice visualization in more of a sort of Western or American, you know, kind of context that we could use to, explain some of these more traditional tibetan uh you know concepts and practices i think the the earliest traction the idea of visualization and using our imagination has got in our culture is, is sports performance right people rehearsing performance in some capacity right so you mm. you create this neurological groove that then is available to you spontaneously, then your mind can fall into, it's already familiar with. And our mind, you know, doesn't know the difference between I'm experiencing this right now or I'm experiencing this in my visual, right? I mean, anybody who's had anxiety knows how that works, right? You're imagining something deeply that's not happening right now, but our body mind is responding as though it is. So there's really no difference. Right. And so I, that kind of, think performance visualization is something people might be already familiar with that kind of format and we can use it's the same idea as what comes up in tibetan visualizations where it's like okay right now there's already a rehearsed pathway there's a habit of mind a way i view myself a way i view other people maybe it's a way i view reality there's a habit going how am i going to transform that habit by familiarizing myself with maybe what else it could look like or what it really looks like over and over and over again. And maybe I don't see myself as that yet. So I need to use some model, some other model for that. And by visualizing that other model, right? So maybe I don't see myself running as fast and winning that race, but I can picture that athlete who's just like crushing it visualize them and go yeah like that yeah like that like that and become intimately familiar with that and then i at some point fuse with that and realize well i'm that too that's in me i can do that and now i can see me 
doing that. I can play that out. And you've got that whole schema you'd call it in Western psychology. Like I've got a schema already for who I am, what the world is, what other people are. And it's locked, which is, or feels locked. It's just a mental habit. So by rehearsing these other mental habits deliberately, now we start to tip the scale of the likelihood of the spontaneous availability of this practice rehearsed one. Right. And I think to me, one of the most important ways we can do this, and it's similar to guru yoga, it's similar to the refuge field is to bring to mind these perfectly loving moments. I'd say relationships, but every relationship is complicated. And we might want to focus like on a particular moment within those relationships. For some, it might be with a spiritual being. For some, it might be a loved one. For some, it could be a perfect stranger or their dog, or it's a place that they go. And and by dipping into that memory, you start to re-experience right here, right now, the direct felt sense of that unconditionally loving field. Right, And that direct experience, now we're going maybe past our thinking mind and past the limiting aspect of our conventional mind. And that's helping us dip into, sometimes you call it the natural state of mind or that Buddha nature, that that wider loving field. By remembering our way back to those moments and realizing that we don't give each other love, but we hold space for that love to remain unobstructed. Right. So nobody gave it to me, even though that's the language we use and that's how it feels. I'm either getting it or I'm not getting it or meeting those conditions or not. We just hold the space so it remains unobstructed. So it doesn't even have to be actually with that person. I can bring up that memory and start to feel what it's like in that space again. And now I'm in that space because that's always right here anyway, always available underneath the things I think obscure that. So it's sort of like a bank shot. You call that loving being, that loving entity, that loving place, that loving moment, and then you just start to feel naturally in the body. And then you can drop that that memory, that visualization, and shift from your focus of the visualization to the focus of the direct felt sense right here, right now. Yeah. I'm glad you brought up that last part. Because that's that has been, I think, for me, one of the major changes between trying to wrap my head around some of these practices 20 years ago and how I feel like I'm practicing them now. It's not just getting caught up in trying to imagine these elaborate visualizations. It's how does that feel? Yeah. You know, and and maybe. I wonder if you would agree the felt sense would be even more important than being able to have this elaborate visualization. The whole elaborate visualization is for the sake of the direct felt sense. Yeah. Any thoughts you'd have visualization is a thought. It's just a different kind of thought, right? So all those thoughts are to evoke that direct felt sense from our natural state of Buddha mind. So yeah, there, there once, once that's evoked, the rest of it can go. It can go. It's not. It's it's your ride to the thing. <laughs> you know, you can know, you can get off the ride. Uh, I don't want to steal your vital point from you, but that one we could probably put a pin in as the vital point of this conversation. Right on. Uh, in my opinion. <laughs> yeah. Right on. I'm with that. <laughs> That's uh, that just that landed so well to me, and um, you know, it's one of the things I like about doing this podcast is like 
sometimes um, there's like almost like these real time sort of analysis or like, you know, integration that's happening of like, oh, wait, actually, oh, yeah, that's totally really good stuff. I got to, you know, come back to that one and really think about how I'm integrating that more. Um, so, yeah, I really appreciate you naming that because it helped to bring some things into focus for me. Um, so, yeah, so since we've talked about kind of the intellectual aspect of it, would you be okay with offering uh, like a practice that the audience could follow along with? Yeah, you bet. You bet. And and awesome. I'll, I'll just Great. to say a couple more things about it before we go into it um, yes. in and of itself is that, you know, the, the last piece of that is, you know, we, we, we visualize what brings us into that felt space. We can let go of that and be in that felt space. And that's what we focus on. But it's understandable that for any of us or any given day that we all have a lot of reactivity to that actually. Mm. Right. So the, sometimes that space is heavily defended, heavily guarded. It doesn't feel safe because of the conditional loving that we may have, you know, got habitual, there's going to be reactivity of some form to that space. So number one, I want to name that. So it, it, to not only expect it, but if it feels like that's, we're done with that, then, then you stop. We're done with that. That's okay. Right. So you trust, like you were talking about the breath work earlier, everyone's got to trust their own intuition on whether or not it's, it's a time and place to go there. Yeah. What I'll say beyond it not feeling the time and place or feeling re-traumatizing is that those pieces that come up and reactivity to it, those are the parts that actually need the most love, right? So now we're engaging in this mindfulness. It's a mindfulness practice, mindful of that unconditional loving awareness space that we just evoked from ourselves by that bank shot of that loving moment environment. And then from the perspective of being that unconditional loving space, rather than identifying with those defended parts, that's what a lot of our personality and our self is built around. So rather than then identifying with that, can we hold that and allow that arise and be held from the perspective of being that unconditional loving space? Watch when the mind wants to reduce itself from being any one of those parts and you just let it come and go. It doesn't mean you have to hold on to it tight either and like squeeze it in that literal sense. But you let it be seen and let it come and go without fully developing into its whole strategy. And so that habitual reactivity to that unconditional loving space can learn to unwind itself and it doesn't have to stick the same way. Amazing. There's a... <laughs> this, uh, this book that isn't quite Buddhist, but it's very, again, with that overlap, I think there's a lot uh, there um, that's come up for me a lot this year is this book called The Untethered Soul. Um, and what you just described in terms of like let being, being able to discern the letting go process and, and allowing that to happen um, as quickly as feels comfortable to the nervous system and to the body um, just being like he says in it, like, Hey, the, one of the, one lesson that you'll learn as you go through this path is like the sooner you can let things go and not try to figure them out or like 
like really uh you know dive into it like the understanding the nuances of it just let it go yeah um it's just something that you know has value in it um and again to go back to you know like doing that in an authentic way in a way that we're, we're not bypassing. Yeah. Uh, I think is always the trick for me. Would you say from this description that you're talking about reading that letting go could also be, you could describe that as not identifying with something, not fusing with something like that. Yeah. 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 And I think for me, like the more, when I, when I start to have that awareness of how I'm reacting or like where I've, um identified as this thing it it starts to i start to see it so much clearer like just i'll give you a great example like just recently i sort of came to this insight about um this pattern that i have of um when i feel like i'm going to get hurt by somebody i'll just push them away before they have the opportunity to hurt me yeah i never saw that any of that whole like a to b to c to z like sequence yeah it was always just like well fuck that person yeah you know like and all now that i've seen it i i'm seeing it crop up in all these like little micro transactions or different aspects of my life and it's almost like once you see it you can't unsee it you know (laughs) yeah 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 And, and and the intention of that However, that without having to pinpoint how that kicked off was to do what for you? To keep me safe. Right. So it it was trying to love. It's still trying to love you. Right. Yeah. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep myself safe by like forcefully removing the danger, the potential or I'm seeing as danger uh, from this situation. Like you can't hurt me if I like get away from you first. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And and it's not right. We're, we're going to somehow learn to like take that part of ourself and now murder it, right? Or like club it right. into submission. Yes. But it's going to keep showing up at the party. We're going to go. Thanks. I love you yep. too. And we're yep. good. And we're good. Yeah. We, I see you. We, yeah. We don't have to be that. But thank you. Yeah. I appreciate it. Right. Yeah. And there might even be some some new role for you know like that. That might give me good. Um, I'm trying to think of like a, a, a concrete example, but you know, it's like we can we can sort of retask those parts once we get to know them and unburden them to use you know like the language of IFS, for yeah. instance. Yeah. yeah. Um, rather than like what you're saying, trying to kill them, you know, trying to trying to get them out of our experience. It's like, okay, cool. Well, now that you're not driving the bus what what do we have for you to do like what could you actually be helpful with with the skill set that you already have you know and right so it's like all those parts of ourselves can be an asset or a liability depending on how much we've um integrated them and accepted them and like seen the value and really like come to appreciate them for what they've given us in our lives and like how they make up this idea of Jonathan or of Noel. Yeah. Yeah. And I think you're saying just to name it too, you're that's a, you're using the IFS language, internal film systems language. This is also a way of describing tantric transformation of poison to wisdom, mm. right? Mm. It's not, you're not getting rid of, there is a raw energy there that like 
it comes up the wrong way with the wrong view at the wrong time, wrong perspective, it's poisonous, right? But, but with the right view and in using it the right time space now, and now it's a wisdom. Now it's a Buddha wisdom, a Buddha energy, you know? And so, yeah, we're not, we're not kicking anybody out of the family here, but, <laughs> but we're renegotiating who does what, when, and, and with the wisdom and clarity to see what shows up when. Awesome. Yeah, so I just want to make sure to tee that piece up for uh, we all have reactivity to that space. And also, if that reactivity, for whatever reason, doesn't feel like the time that you want to explore that space, then then you let it go. But what we're doing is yeah. the revisiting of that space, like the other kinds of rehearsals or like you're just laying that track over and over again in the mind to to familiarize ourselves with it, to familiarize ourselves, to make easier access to it, to recognize that that's always available in there and it gets easier and easier the more and more familiar we're not actually building more of it it's always here we're just becoming familiar with it yeah well said thanks for the reminder shall we do it let's do it all right okay so the first phase here um i'm going to invite people to do a visualization which means or an imagination is a better word you can sit in a posture that works for you, eyes open, eyes closed, especially for a visualization. A lot of people find it more helpful to imagine with their eyes closed. So whatever feels safe for you, whatever feels supportive of entering and utilizing your imagination. Taking a few breaths to just let the body relax. Directing attention at breath, just so we have our mind present for a few moments. And what I'm going to ask you to call up is a moment, a relationship, a being. It could be a person you really know, or it could be a spiritual being. It could be a pet. Or maybe it's even a place. Just feel a place. That in that moment, or with that being, or in that place, you tend to feel a moment of perfect love. It's not that they give it to you, but you're held in such a way that that is evoked from you. Maybe it's what somebody said or didn't say, the way they physically held you. the way you were seen, the way you needed to be seen. Maybe it was the way you were encouraged. Just scan through the mind and think about those who loved us into being and there might be one that pings and just keep visualizing a moment with them. Imagine them right here in the space with you or imagine yourself in that space, whatever it may be. What did it sound like? What did it smell like? What did it look like? Just steep in this moment. Remembering as many details as you can come up with and you can make up the rest, it's okay. It's all about re-evoking the felt sense of what that experience was like. 
recognize how the body feels. Keep reviewing all the details of that moment so you start to get the felt sense of what it's like to be in that moment as though it's happening right now, right here. Once you start to get the direct felt sense of being held in that unconditionally loving way, the direct felt sense we're having right now, just realize that we're an extension of that loving field. We are that too. And you can start to let go of that imagined situation, that memory. Shift your focus from building that and reviewing that visualization, imagination to focusing on the direct felt sense that's been evoked right here, right now. Open, spacious, warm. loving field of awareness. If that direct felt sense fades at all, you can always re-evoke the memory. You can always bring the visualization piece back. But once it's evoked, we don't want to hang on to that. We want to focus on the direct experience right here, right now. As we begin to experience that, we might notice parts of our mind react and respond to that. Maybe in ways that are habitual, maybe in unique ways. Thoughts will arise, ideas will arise about it, limiting beliefs about it will arise, maybe emotions will arise and come up. Whatever it is that arises, we're going to allow that to come up. So we're now viewing that from being that unconditional loving space. It's got limited, limitless capacity for everything that comes up. And there's no need to hold on to any of it or identify with any of it. And we use that mindfulness skill set to watch when we begin to fuse or identify with or chase after any experience that arises and we just keep remaining viewing from that from from that awareness space infinitely loving space let it arise it's all welcome and we're going to let it go Loving every part of you. Loving everything that comes up. Seeing everything that comes up. 
allowing, encouraging, loving it all, healing it all, thanking it all. Every aspect of your experience just loved for its very being, just for its being, just as it is. Whenever you're ready, in a formal sense, we can shift out of that meditation. And at the same time, we don't have to change anything about what we're doing or where we're operating from. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Noel. That was amazing. I had a beautiful sense of this podcast being a part of what came up for me so it did feel very integrative <laughs> yeah. yeah are you open to sharing more what's your experience like with that i was fortunate enough to meet my main teacher um, in like in the tibetan you know sort of vocabulary my my root teacher um, fairly early on in my practice. And, um, you know, I, I got to go to Tibet and live for a year and, you know, mostly in his monastery and, um, really, really amazing things because of that. And then when I came back to the States, like the whole reason I had gone over there was, um, I, I wanted to, to do the traditional three-year retreat. Mm -hmm. And one of my other teachers had suggested becoming a translator. And I said, well, I don't have the money or the time to go to like Harvard and do that. Yeah. He said, no, no, just go over to Tibet and teach English. You'll be fine. Um, and there was this whole plan and I, I really trusted in it and had this amazing year in the end of which I did not uh, take the next step into sort of the translator school. I came back and just started went back to like a quote unquote normal life. And um, between then and the the time that came up in the meditation uh, was like almost like 13 years where I didn't see my teacher, even though we live in the same state, like literally I could get in my car right now and drive for like three and a half hours and be where he lives. And, you know, and I was kind of disconnected from that part of my life. And my, um, this is a long story, but, uh, you know, my, my current partner started to get more interested in 
Tibetan Buddhism and, and as sort of a shamanic practitioner was really attracted to some of the more shamanic aspects mm -hmm. of the practice and really got interested in this particular, um, what's known as a, you know, Dharma protector, mm -hmm. these sort of wrathful deities. And she was, she got really, really curious about wanting to do Mahakala practice. Mm -hmm. And she calls me one day and she says, we, did you know that your teacher has a center in Arizona? And I said, uh-huh. And she's like, and, and he's giving a Mahakala empowerment in like two weeks, I'm going. And I was like, that's amazing. Like, can I come too? <laughs> and so uh, we went up to his retreat center and, and went to these teachings. And during the break, um, we went and we, there's this sort of unique stupa there. It's a Tara stupa. It's a stupa that you can walk in, you can go inside. Um, and before I had gone to Tibet, I, I camped in the stupa for like a week. Um, and so we're sitting in the stupa. I'm already having the, these feelings kind of come up. And at that point, my, my teacher, Garchin Rinpoche, walked into the stupa with a couple of the monks and started doing like the preparation for the actual empowerment that he was about to give. And something happened in that moment where like a lifetime of shame and guilt just fell away. Like I could literally just feel it draining out of my body and almost like reconnecting to this initial experience of being connected to, to this teacher. And I was just sitting there weeping and feeling just so loved and supported and accepted and uh, connected. And uh, yeah, that, that's what came up um, during the meditation. And so then like, it was almost like he, he kind of came to me at a certain point yeah. and was like, do you see how like what you're doing now is connected? Like, look at how you're, look at how you're integrating all this stuff, you know? And it was, it was less of like a verbal lesson, but just more of a felt sense of yeah. like, mm, everything is in this Buddha field together and, and in connection. And, um, you know, it's, it's not lost on me that I'm about to go to work and, you know, help people, you know, hopefully learn some mindfulness and, you know, maybe for the first time. Um, so I just, I felt a lot of gratitude for, for being in the field. Yeah. It's, it's amazing how sometimes just remembering those things or remembering a teacher or even remember a moment with the teacher, but it, 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 not, but, and it's right here, right? Even I could feel that as you were talking about it. Yeah. It's like, oh yeah, there it is right there. Hmm. Oh, yeah, no. Uh, yeah, I can. It that to me is like, you know, there's so many things in my life where I've lived in my head, and there's certain moments and certain teachers where it just goes completely beyond that in an instant. Yeah, and you know, it's like I generally when I see pictures of him or like will watch his, you know, his film or something, 
um, I cry, you know, I don't even have to be in, in present in the physical presence, yeah. but it's been like that since day one, yeah. you know, uh, which is just a amazing, beautiful feeling. Would, would you agree with the idea that it is really about the space that someone like that can hold for you as opposed to here, I'm going to give you, I have something to give you. Oh yeah. Yeah. He's just living it by his example. I mean, like the fact that this particular, you know, as a, if we just want to look at him as a human being, you know, that you could be that full of loving kindness and unconditional compassion after being in a prison camp for 20 years, you know, to even to take it a step further than that and say, I didn't really know that much in terms of like, like I, I could tell you Dharma, but like actually integrating it and like experiencing it. I didn't really understand that till I went through that prison experience. And I'm so grateful for that experience because that's where I met my teacher. It's like, that's so counter to what most people would think of, yeah. you know, in uh, or when they would imagine themselves in that experience. Um, it's just such an example, yeah. you know. That's beautiful, man. I Definitely. appreciate you sharing. Yeah, thanks for thanks for asking, and thank you for the the beautiful offering and for the practice. And um, yeah, I want to make sure we leave some space to talk about some of the other offerings that you have. And I also wanted to mention that in addition to having this practice within the podcast um, for you to come back to, um, you know, Noel also has six different meditations that you can download through his uh, website, Linktree, Instagram, however you connect with him mm-hmm. um, that are just as amazing and definitely encourage you to to check those out. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about the upcoming uh, classes that you're, that you're offering as well. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. That, um, those meditations are there for, for everybody to support, you know, um, and like you said, you can go to the bccp.com or, or wake up sleepy Buddha and get those. There is a course I'm starting that's going to be August 28th. We'll start and it's called, um, it's a, a comprehensive meditation course called cultivating mindfulness, compassion, and insight. And the idea is doing introduction to mindfulness a handful of times. Often people get to the end of that. Maybe not everybody. It's okay to leave it at mindfulness, but then a lot of people would be curious about what, what other meditations and things like that. And I did a couple of shorter courses around that and just found it'd be nice to have a little bit more room on each of these topics. So the idea is you can either take this whole course, it's like a semester through, through December, or take any piece of it. So we'll do mindfulness, then we'll do a half day sit on mindfulness after the mindfulness sessions. And then we're going to do a couple of sessions on intention and motivation learn those types of practices. Then we're going to do uh, compassion, contemplation. We're going to do uh, insight. We're going to do concentration and then close the whole thing. I think I'm getting the order wrong, but we're going to close the whole thing with a full day sit, integrating all of those. So there are specific meditations in each of those topics and a whole world of them. So it's the idea is to introduce that sort of world of category of types of meditations and give some examples and practice them and then show how they all actually go back to the same practice of mindfulness. You know, we don't 
graduate past that, but we keep injecting different views and, okay, who is practicing mindfulness? From what perspective? Even the practice we just did earlier involves mindfulness, but integrated with a couple different pieces and perspectives, right? So it's these little sort of side journeys that go back to feed the main practice and expand on that. Um, so I'm going to do that by Zoom. I'm going to record it so you can watch it asynchronously and participate on the online community. And if you're in Boston, there's going to be an in-person version, JP Center. So you can do the whole thing or whatever pieces of that speak to you. And we'll definitely add that information to the uh, the show page. Right on. So that you can easily link to it. Definitely would recommend it. Noel was uh, one of the teachers I really, I mean, a- a- every teacher um, within, you know, the Dharma Moon mindfulness teacher training was amazing in their own right. Um, you know, definitely appreciated Noel's approach. Um, and as you just, uh, got a chance to get a taste of there, um, to, to meditation and to the experience that he brought to the experience. Well, let's plug that the experience too. he brought to the experience. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let's plug that to Jonathan. Just let that, So Dharma moon, um, they're, they've got a meditation teacher training cohort that'll start. I think the next one's coming up in October. But they do one every season. There's one that starts every fall, every spring, and they do one in the summer, right? So that's a five weekend meditation teacher training program. That's how Jonathan and I know one another. Um, so that's for those. You can come with no experience in mindfulness. The whole first piece is learning the mindfulness. But the idea is, right, when you leave from that, you would feel confident in conveying how to practice, why to practice, what is the practice of mindfulness, and feel pretty confident in doing that by the end of it. So. If anybody's interested in that, it's a great it program. Out. Yeah, I went through it myself. Yeah, definitely vouch for it myself. You know, I felt like I was getting into a place where, you know, with my experience, I could cobble together a first class, but then I was getting into the situation where I was teaching second or third or like, and now I'm like, okay, well, how do I do that? What do I do? Um, what do I do with people that I've already done the first class with? And the that teacher training program was invaluable in supporting me stepping into this newer role and feeling more comfortable with it and can definitely recommend it highly. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, uh, Noel, for sharing your wisdom and experience and just love this conversation. Um, you're definitely welcome back on the podcast anytime. Thanks, man. Thanks for what really, you do. Really, really a pleasure um yeah and i guess we we sort of touched on maybe a, a possible vital point is there anything else that is coming up for you as alive in this moment to mention you know to sum it up it's it's you're already you're already what you're looking for it's always right here mm. it's always right here love it beautiful beautiful way to close i sincerely hope you found value and inspiration in this episode If it struck a chord with you, I'd be incredibly grateful if you could take a moment and leave a review for the podcast. It's a simple, cost-free way to show support and help more like-minded people discover the show. Also, make sure you sign up for my newsletter at bluemagicalchemy.com to be the first to get updates, exclusive content, and insights delivered straight to your inbox. It's a fantastic way to stay connected and keep the cultivation of wisdom going. If you're ready to dive deeper into transformation through integration, coaching, breathwork, and meditation, I'm here to support you. 
One of the best ways to learn about my offerings is on Instagram at Blue Magic Alchemy, where I post a lot of content to help seekers like yourself learn hands-on methods for their personal exploration and development, just like I do on this podcast. Remember, it's not about the method you chose or the pace at which you travel. The vital point is to consistently show up for yourself and practice. As the saying goes, it's not the destination, but the journey that truly matters. And I'd be honored to accompany you on yours. So please don't hesitate to reach out, connect, share your journey, successes, the challenges, all of it, from just an email, DM, or review away. Let's journey, grow, and transform together. Thanks again for tuning in. Until the next episode, keep exploring, keep growing, and above all, keep practicing, because that's the vital point.